So we have been in the book of Genesis. I think this is the last week we're going to be in Genesis for the past few weeks now because we're talking about systematic theology and we're going along with what the kids are learning in Adventure Club. And so we're seven weeks into this. And so we've looked at creation. We've looked at how God made man in his own image, male and female. He created them. We've looked at marriage and what marriage is. And then we spent two weeks on the fall. We looked at just what the temptation was that Satan lured Adam and Eve into, into, into sinning. Last week we talked about the ramifications of the fall, how it brought spiritual death into the world. And so today we're going to continue to look at what sin does. And um, as we think about that, I want you to think of some of the, the famous sibling rivalries that have been around, maybe on TV or in sports. I think back when I was growing up, um, I, I grew up in Texas in the 70s and in, in, in 80s, and so um, a big TV show back then was Dallas. And, um, you know, the, the Ewing boys, Bobby Ewing and J.R. Ewing, the two Ewing brothers, the, the sibling rivalry. Um, I don't know if you guys remember back the Super Bowl in 2013. I know that was a long time ago. The Ravens and the 49ers. Anybody know what was special about the Ravens and the 49ers in 2013? It was the very first time two brothers were the head coaches of the opposing teams, the Harbaugh brothers. So John and Jim Harbaugh. Now Jim is now coaching the University of Michigan. Uh, John is still the coach of the Ravens. Think about Venus and Serena Williams, the Williams sisters, how they went and, and, and competed against each other in tennis. Um, I think they competed against each other in eight Grand Slam singles tournaments, including Wimbledon. Sibling rivalry. But what's the most famous story of sibling rivalry of all time? Cain and Abel. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in Genesis chapter 4. Now, if you remember, I said Genesis chapter 3 is foundational to understanding the entire Bible. And we looked at last week what happened with the ramifications of what Adam and Eve did. And and let's just go back to Genesis 3.15 because we'll keep coming back to that. That's the most important passage of Scripture in, I believe, the Old Testament. And so this is the first announcement of the gospel, the first promise of a Savior. And God curses the, the, the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now ultimately this is pointing to Christ, the coming Messiah that would crush the head of Satan. But in the immediate context, what does Adam and Eve, what are they thinking? Adam and Eve are going to have offspring. And the big question is, okay, is this offspring, is this child of Adam and Eve, is this child going to be the Messiah? Is this child going to be the one that crushes the head of Satan? What's going to be the, the, um, the fate of this child that comes on the scene? And so in the immediate story with Genesis, we're left with a question. What would become of this son that is born, or sons that were born to Adam and Eve? And so we plunge into chapter 4, and it's amazing that, let me just say this, before video games, before violence in movies, before any media, the very first family, there's murder. Before, there's all these cultural influences. So there's something about sin that resides in the heart more so than just the environment that we're around. Now, both of those play into, into part, a part in that. But remember what we talked about last week, how because of Adam and Eve's sin, all of us have inherited that guilt and sin. It's been passed down to Adam or through Adam to us. And so we see sin... As, and so here's the children's lesson. I'm going to start putting the children's lesson up here so you just parents kind of know. They're, they're going to be learning about Cain and Abel tonight too. So um, their title for the children's lesson is Sin is Rebellion Against God. And, and we're going to look at a lot of the same scriptures they are tonight. So let's read Genesis 4. And let's read this account, verses 1 through 16. It's very familiar, but we're going to unpack it tonight and see all the implications of what happens with Cain and Abel. Okay. All right, verse 1. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, names mean so much in Old Testament. What a person's name is often determines their character. And so when Eve conceives, and that word know, Adam knew, Eve, his wife, is the, the Hebrew word yada. It means to know sexually. They, they had sexual intercourse, they con- she conceived, and in the literal Hebrew, she says, I acquired or I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, who's the focus on? Look what I've done. Look what popped out of me. Look what I've accomplished. I've produced a man. And so the name Cain means to get, to acquire. A foreshadowing of the character of Cain. Now, from the very beginning, Eve is kind of relying upon fig leaves again. Remember I said last week fig leaves, them fashioning fig leaves is kind of the attempt at man-made religion. Instead of giving credit to God and saying, wow, this is a miracle of childbirth. Look what God produced. She's like, look what I did. I produced this boy, this man. And yes, physically, technically, biologically, she produced Cain. But notice the focus is on her. I got. I got. And the question you got to ask is, okay, if this is foreshadowing and Cain means I got, what's Cain going to get? What's going to be the character of Cain? If you know anything about biblical history in that ancient culture, the firstborn son was the most important. He got all the rights. He got the inheritance. He got the birthright. Um, he got to inherit the father's blessing and property. And so um, you'll see this pattern all throughout the Old Testament where things are supposed to go right for the firstborn, but the firstborn always messes up and it goes to the, the secondborn. So Eve is excited that she produced a son. She's not showing much humility or thankfulness. She is touting her own ability. Now, I came across something very, very interesting. In 1863, at the height of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln designated April 30th, and listen to this, this is what he, April 30th was a national day, and this is what he called it, a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And let me read to you a portion of his proclamation. This is from a president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. This will shock you, what he said. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Quote, let me get my glasses so I can fully read this. 
President Lincoln said in 1863, it is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Would that any president say that today. That's amazing. That our president in 1863 would call a national day of repentance and humility. And so Eve is operating out of, wow, look what, I produced this man with the help of the Lord. I got a little help from God, but ultimately it's me. Now, Eve may have thought her son, Cain, was going to be the offspring to crush the head of the serpent. Because what did God promise? Your offspring will crush his head. So maybe Eve thought, oh, here we go. Cain is the one. He's the one that's going to beat down Satan. Okay, but there's another son born. And I want to tell you how his name is pronounced in Hebrew. If you want to say his name in Hebrew, it's... It means breath, vapor. What's that a foreshadowing of? Abel is only going to be on the scene for a short time. Like a breath out on a cold winter's morning when you see your breath and it disappears. His life is going to be violently snuffed out by his jealous brother. So you got Cain, I got, and I fell. Vapor. Now, there's something that we see from this account that we have to infer that's not explicit. And that is this. These boys would have known the proper way to worship God. What's the proper way to worship God? You can go back to Genesis 3.21. Go back to Genesis 3.21, which is a picture of the gospel Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now what do we say this was a passage referring to? God kills an animal, blood sacrifice, kills a substitute, and then clothes Adam and Eve with the clothing of that substitute, thus a picture of grace, a picture of Christ. So Adam and Eve understood the, 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 the killing of an animal as a sacrifice because God first did it in clothing them. So apparently, the proper way to come to God was on his terms with a sacrifice of an animal whose blood had been shed. I'm sure Cain and Abel had heard growing up this account sitting around the dinner table. Hey, boys, we want to tell you about the time we were naked and God killed an animal and clothed us. How many times do we have to hear the story, Mom and Dad? Well, it's a cool story, so we're going to keep telling it. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us that happened. But you kind of get a little clue. Look at verse 3. In the course of time. Some translations say, at the end of days. Now, some scholars think that that actually is a reference to a specified time when God would require the sacrifice. We don't really know. We know later on under Moses there was the sacrificial system. It's not explicit in the text. But what we do know is there's something that sets Abel's sacrifice or his offering apart from Cain's. Abel comes with the blood of an animal killed, understanding the need for atonement. Cain comes with fruit. So what I want us to do from this passage of Scripture, and if sin is rebellion against God, um, I, could have call, I could have titled this night The Seven Sins of Cain or Raisin Cain. 
The seven sins of Cain. What are the seven sins of Cain that we see in this passage of Scripture? There's seven of them. Here's the first, and it's the root of all the other sins. It's the very beginning. Cain falsely worships God with an attitude of self-reliance and hypocrisy. Now, what does Cain bring as an offering to the Lord? Cain brings produce. Instead of relying upon a substitutionary atonement from the blood of an animal, he relies on what he alone can produce. He may have thought he worked harder than Abel. I mean, he worked the ground. He put in the blood, sweat, and tears. He farmed. He put a lot of energy into getting this produce. All Abel had to do was go out and kill an animal and bring the fat portions. Not only was it the type of sacrifice, the wrong type of sacrifice, it wasn't a firstborn animal killed, but it was also brought in the wrong manner. This is where you, get, this is where you understand you have to dive into the original language. So I'm going to help you here because you don't quite get it in your English translations, but when you go and study the original Hebrew language, in verse 3, where it says there, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. If you read the original language in verse 3, the word for fruit is in the singular. Maybe one banana. (laughs) It's almost like Cain brought one, not a bushel of fruit. Maybe he brought one apple. It was a very small amount. It wasn't a bushel. It wasn't a basket. Maybe a small cluster of grapes. We don't know. All that we know is that it was a very small amount of produce that he brought as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, contrast that to Abel. What did Abel bring? You guys read it there. What does he bring? Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, and the fat portions. Abel brings the best. The firstborn, the best. He didn't give God token leftovers. He gave God the best and even the fat portions. So Abel comes with two things. Abel comes with the right sacrifice. It's an animal sacrifice, and he comes with it the right way. The first fruits, the firstborn. It wasn't a token leftover. He gave God his best. So Abel is demonstrating faith here in that he understands how to worship God in the right way. And notice what God does. God looks with favor upon Abel's sacrifice. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now the Bible doesn't come out right and say it like, The reason why God didn't have regard, but you can read between the lines. Cain is giving his leftovers, and Cain is giving not an animal sacrifice. Abel's giving the first fruits and giving an animal sacrifice. In other words, what you see here is that Cain's trying to pull one over on God. He's going through the motions of looking religious. I know I got to bring a sacrifice, so I'm going to bring these leftovers. He's got a cold, distant heart. The leftovers. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, when he's quoting from Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Cain's heart was far from God. I'm going through the motions. I'm doing this because I have to. I'm bringing the leftovers. I'm bringing one produce. I'm not trusting in the blood of a substitutionary atonement. I'm trying to look religious, but really I'm being hypocritical. So that's sin number one. All right, let's look at sin number two. Sin number two is he burned with extreme anger. Okay, if you look there at verse five, at the second half of verse five, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Literally, in the Hebrew, it reads, he burned or kindled exceedingly. He got hot. 
What should he have done at that point? He should have confessed to the Lord, Yahweh, Lord God, I confess my sin of giving you my leftovers. I'm going to go back and I'm going to repent. I'm going to kill an animal and I'm going to bring the first fruits. I'm going to worship you in the proper way. Instead, what does he do? He gets angry. He gets jealous of his brother. Now, it's okay to be angry at times, but anger can lead to sin. Ephesians 4, 26-27, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Have you ever thought about that? Anger giving the devil an opportunity or a foothold into your life? So number one, he's trying to look religious. He brings the wrong sacrifice in the wrong way with the wrong heart. Number two, God says, Abel, or says, Cain, you brought, the wrong, you brought it the wrong way. I have regard for your brother because he's doing it the right way. So number two, Cain gets extremely angry. Now third, the third sin, he did not listen to God's merciful warning to repent. Notice what God says to him. God gives him a second chance. Notice what God says. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires for you, but you must rule over it. Sin's crouching at the door. Crouching tiger, hidden lion. Is that what it was called, that movie? When you think of something crouching at your door, what do you think of? Like a wild animal or a beast. God personifies sin as this thing that's going to get you, Cain, but you better get mastery over it. Don't give in to this sin. You better repent. You better, if God gives you a second chance, you better take it. And God's given Cain a second chance if you do well. In other words, go back and do the right type of sacrifice and come back with the right sacrifice in the right way. If you do well, I will have regard for your sacrifice. If you don't do well, then you're going to continue to burn with anger and sin's crouching at your door and you're going to be trapped up. I'm giving you a second chance. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I mean, God could do whatever he wants. God could have killed Cain on the spot and said, you brought the wrong sacrifice, you're dead, buddy. And God would have every right to do that. But God says, listen, Cain, I'm giving you a second chance. And the reason I'm giving you a second chance is not so you can continue to sin, but so that you can repent. It would lead you to repentance. In other words, God's saying, I think I've said this, if Cain does well, he'll be accepted. If he goes back and brings the right offering with the right attitude and shows true heartfelt devotion to God, God would accept his offering. So when God confronts you with conviction of sin and he gives you a second chance and he's merciful and he's patient, that's meant to lead you to repentance not to continue to do what you've been doing in hopes that, oh, I mean, God will give me another second chance and it's not a big deal. No, God's doing that because he loves you and he's given you an opportunity. Okay, let's look at Cain's fourth sin. He burns with jealousy over his brother. There's a sibling rivalry going on here. Verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. This is a, um, <clears throat> an interesting thing that's happening with sinful ri- sibling rivalry because what's Cain more worried about? The fact that, what, what's he really thinking about? My brother's getting respect and admiration, not respect, my brother's getting favor from God and I'm not. So instead of me doing the right thing, I'm going to burn with jealousy for my brother. And it's turning to hate. There is a famous philosopher, and all of you know who he is. 
He said this one time. Envy leads to jealousy. Jealousy leads to hate. Hate leads to anger. Anger leads to the dark side. You know who that philosopher is, don't you? Yoda from Star Wars. You remember episode three where Anakin is getting jealous of Obi-Wan? And then that anger turns to jealousy. Then eventually what ends up turning, Obi- or turning Anakin to become Darth Vader is ultimately his jealousy of Obi-Wan Kenobi. He turns to the dark side because of raging jealousy. That anger turns to hate. So there is religiosity. There's bad attitude, there's lack of repentance, there's anger, there's sibling rivalry, there's jealousy. And now, let's look at, this is the sin we often think about. But there's a lot of sins that have led up to the fifth sin. What's the fifth sin? Cold-blooded, premeditated murder. He doesn't master his sin. Sin is crouching at at his door and he gets the better of it. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is not a burst of rage where two brothers are fighting and they get out of control and he happens to accidentally kill his brother and it's involuntarily manslaughter. No, he's had time to think about it. He's had time to plan it. This is an intentional act of murder. He planned to do this in a field where no one would see. He could dispose of the body make it look like an accident or that possibly an animal had attacked him. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's premeditated. It's intentional. It's calculated. It's out in secret. Thinking that nobody can see, but let me just ask you a question. Who always sees? God. So the ultimate sin is murder. This is before the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, but there's murder being committed. Still sinful. Now here's the sixth sin. You may say, well, isn't Cain done? He's got two more sins. Here's number six. He tries in vain to cover his tracks, and he lies to God. Now, this is very familiar like the courtroom scene. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago when Adam and Eve sinned and they were hiding and God says, where are you? And it wasn't like God didn't know where they were. It's a courtroom scene. God's the judge and he's calling them out into the courtroom to answer for their crimes. So this is what he does with Cain. Notice what he says. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Okay, did God not know where Abel was? This is not giving God information as if God's not omniscient and all-knowing. God knows all things. God sees all things, past, present, and future. This is the judge calling Cain into the courtroom to answer for his crime. Where's your brother? Where's your brother? What does Cain say to God? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) Okay. That's a bold-faced lie, right? He's, who, who's he lying to? God. I don't know where he is. Why are you asking me, God? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be going around figuring out all the things that, that Abel's doing? He's a grown man. What, what do you, why are you asking me about it? I just so happened to kill him and cover it up, make sure nobody knew about it, but hey, I think I can fool you, God. I don't know where he is. What does Hebrews 4.13 say? No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. Cain can't hide from God. You and I can't hide from God. He lies. He tries to cover his tracks. Let me just give you a pun here. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What did Adam do? When God says, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Well, this woman you gave me, it's her fault. And by the way, God, it's your fault for giving her to me. Eve, what have you done? It's the serpent's fault. The devil made me do it. So his parents are good at blaming. 
So he's, he's playing the blame game himself. Am I my brother's keeper? Now I want you to notice the words that God says here. Very interesting. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Again, it's not that God doesn't know. Again, this is courtroom imagery. God is bringing conviction. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Eerie imagery there. I know you killed Abel and you buried him, but his blood is crying out. His blood is like a shriek that can still be heard. It's crying out from the ground. You're not getting away with it. You're not pulling one over on me. I know you've killed your brother. And you're going to deal with the ramifications of it for the rest of your life. Now, remember, Adam and Eve were not cursed. The ground was cursed. The serpent was cursed, but Adam and Eve were not cursed. They had the ramifications of sin where there was intensified childbearing pain and there was you know, dysfunction in the home where the woman wanted to rule over the man and the man would want to rule over the woman. But nobody, nobody was ever cursed, person. But notice what God says to Cain. Verse 11. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's brother's blood from your hand. This is the first person in the Bible to be cursed. And God says that Cain would be a restless wanderer. The word Hebrew for wanderer can also mean to lament, to cry out. to be. So basically, Cain, the rest of Cain's life is going to be, he's going to lament what he did. He's going to wander as a fugitive. He's going to be alone. He's going to live with guilt. He's going to live with shame. He's going to live with sorrow as a wanderer the rest of his days. Why? Because sin had mastered him. Sin was crouching at his door. And instead of asking for God's help, instead of calling upon God's grace, instead of repenting, he lets sin get the better of him. Now there's one final sin. What's the seventh sin of Cain? Sounds like a movie. The seventh sin of Cain. He shows no signs of true repentance, but wallows in self-pity. Notice what he does. Do you see what he does when God curses him? Verse 13, he's, he's, he's whining to God. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Wah, wah, wah. What's the one thing you don't see Cain doing? You ever, ever, ever see Cain confessing sin? Does he ever say, I confess murder. I confess anger. I confess lying. I confess these things to you, Almighty God, because I'm naked before you and I can't hide and I come to you in repentance. I come to you in confession. I come to you in contrition. Please forgive me, Lord. And the only way you can forgive me is to kill another animal instead of killing me because I need that blood sacrifice to cover my blood. Do you ever see Cain doing that? No, he's whining that God cursed him. He's upset with the consequences of his sin. That is not true repentance. True repentance grieves over sin because it's sin and it offends a holy God. Worldly sorrow gets upset because you got caught and you have to deal with the consequences. Godly sorrow weeps that the sin was offensive to God. You desperately cling to him for grace and you own up to the consequences. This is a worldly sorrow. Cain is sorrowful because he got caught and he has to deal with the consequences, but he's not repenting. He's not coming clean. He's not confessing his sin. He's not owning up to his sin. He's basically complaining against God that he has to deal with the consequences of his sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces 
death. Now, here's the amazing thing about this narrative. Did God have every right to kill Cain on the spot for seven sins of which he did not repent or confess? Even in the midst of this, God shows grace. What does God do? God puts a mark on him so that no one would kill him. Now, we don't know what this mark is, but he says there in verse 15, the Lord put a mark on Cain lest anyone found him should attack him. Some type of supernatural mark that prevented Cain from being killed. Now, here's what the Bible doesn't say, but here's my opinion. We have to assume that there's other people on the earth at this time that were probably brothers and sisters. Cain and Abel weren't the only children of Adam and Eve. Now, we know what happened when, um, in David's family when there was rape. It took two years, and then the brother killed the brother. Who knows, maybe a family member wanted to take revenge for Cain killing Abel and wanted to rise up and kill Cain. So somehow God puts a supernatural mark on Cain to prevent him from being killed. So he, his life is spared, but he lives an unrepentant wanderer, cursed of God, to basically roam the earth. But verse 16 is the telling issue. It's the ultimate consequence or the ultimate ramification of rebellion. Look at verse 16 very carefully. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Literally, Cain went out from the face of the Lord. And the word Nod means to wander. I mean, he settled, he settled, the wanderer settled in wanderer, okay? Now, what do you know about the face of God? What was the Israelites' greatest joy, their greatest desire? Think about, like, the ironic blessing in Numbers. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The psalmist would say, Lord, don't turn your face from me. They wanted the, the face of God was God's presence, God's power, God's favor. Everything intimately related to having a, a worship relationship with God. The worst thing that could happen to an ancient Israelite would be to have God's face turn away. Cain is banished as a wanderer. And he goes out from the presence of God. Unrepentant a wanderer dealing with the consequences of his sin because sin mastered him. Now, if you stop right here, you're thinking, okay, is this, how's the rest of the Bible going to go? This is bad. Right off the shoot, you have the, the son killing the other son and, and this promised seed supposed to come and it's supposed to crush the head of Satan. Right now, it looks like Satan's winning. What's going to happen here? Well, Cain, in his lineage, does not represent the seed of the woman. Cain is from the seed of the serpent, prototypically or allegorically. In other words, Cain is going to be the prototype for all those who follow Satan and engage in idolatry and rebellion. There's going to be those like the, the, the reprobate, the unregenerate, those that don't follow Christ. They're going to be the offspring or the followers of Satan. Now, one of the things we see about Cain is the, desire, the, the dire effects of original sin. Now, remember, original sin is not the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. Original sin means that what Adam and Eve did or what Adam did is passed down to every single person that's ever lived. And here we have it like literally passed down to his son. Cain was born with a sinful nature that he inherited from his father, Adam. 
the same way you and I are born with a sinful nature that we inherited all the way back from our ultimate father, Adam. Cain was a sinner by nature, and that nature caused him to commit sinful acts. Now, here's a trick question I often ask. Are you a sinner because you sin, or are you a sin, are you a, do you sin because you're a sinner? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Kind of like that. Okay. You commit actual sins because they flow from your nature. What does Jesus say is the nature of our hearts? This is Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, listen to what Jesus says. And he said, that's Jesus. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. Okay, so Jesus is going to list what comes from our hearts. Okay, Jesus, tell us. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So why do you break the Ten Commandments? Because your evil heart from within causes you to do that. You commit actual sins because they first start in your heart, which comes from your nature of being a sinner. And so from the very beginning, we see Cain committing sins upon sins, and it doesn't come in a vacuum. It's not, he's not born a blank slate. He is born with a sinful nature the way all of us are. And what is sin? Well, 1 John says this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of the law. Sin is breaking God's law. Now, it's very interesting what 1 John 3.12 says. You ready? 1 John 3.12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John's saying, don't be like Cain. Cain was evil. Now, Cain and Abel is at the end of the story. What does the writer of Hebrews say about Cain and Abel? Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, you have the hall of faith? Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still lives. Isn't that interesting? Who gets the last word? Cain or Abel? Abel gets the last word. Now what does Abel's name mean? Breath, vapor. It's, it's the height of irony, really, when you think about it. Because the man whose name was vapor, breath, short time on the scene, he's the one that's still speaking today. He still speaks. His blood still speaks a better word. While his brother Cain is characterized by evil and rebellion. Now, Adam and Eve, at this point, I'm sure, are left in agony because their son Abel's killed and their firstborn son is a cursed wanderer. And you look around and you think, okay, who's going to crush the head of the serpent because it sort of looks like the serpent won this round. But we also continue to see the lineage of Cain. Cain doesn't just affect himself but his lineage. So let's keep reading. Let's read verses 17 through 24. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. 
And I'm just going to go through these names. Enoch, to Enoch was born Erod. Erod fathered Mahujoel. Mahujoel fathered Methushoel. And Methushoel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Javel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Okay, what's the, what's the lineage of Cain here? I, have you ever caught this before in your Bible? Cain's lineage is the ultimate symbol of human culture and great civilizations without the presence of God. Notice what's focused on here his sons and what they did. You've got metallurgy, the forging of bronze and iron tools. They're making tools, weapons. Poetry and the arts, the harp and the flute. And then cities. Cain built a city. Now I want you to think about something for a moment. This is before the flood. When you picture the Old Testament, what do you normally picture? A bunch of Old Testament nomads walking around with sheep, kind of wandering around, and not more agricultural, gregarian, rural. Don't you think about that, don't you? When you think about the Old Testament? Maybe when you think about a city, you think of Jerusalem or Jericho. Well, right here from the bat, what's being produced? Cities with great civilization, great poetry, great art, great metal, but it's all without God. It's wicked. The Bible can be described as a tale of two cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. No, Charles Dickens. The city of God and the city of man. The city of the serpent, the city of Christ. Or as Revelation puts it, Babylon the Great, and the New Jerusalem. It's interesting when you go back to Revelation chapters 17 and 18, and a little bit of chapter 19 where it talks about Babylon the Great and how she's fallen. Babylon is a picture of culture and civilization without God. Now, who's this Lamech, one of Cain's sons? He emerges as even more evil than Cain. More violent than Cain. You notice how right from the bat, it went from I'm murdering my brother to like extreme violence here. Now, Lamech becomes the ultimate in premeditated evil and shows the reality of the corrupt seed because here's two things that we see from Lamech right from the beginning. What does Lamech do? He takes two wives. He starts polygamy. What do we know earlier that God told Adam and Eve in Genesis? Chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. A monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Lamech takes two wives just because he wanted to. And then number two, he commits a grossly unjust vendetta. Now in verses 23 and 24 do you see it like almost like it's in poetry like it's a psalm is it like a psalm in your bible okay this is called this is what scholars have called this they call it the song of the sword the song of the sword now why do they call it the song of the sword now obviously Lamech kills somebody doesn't say how he kills them, but most scholars believe if they were proficient in metallurgy and metal, that maybe he forged a sword and killed a boy. He kills a boy. The ESV says, I killed a young man. The Hebrew word means child or boy who injured him. 
Now, we don't know exactly what happened here. But let's say a little boy comes up to Lamech and accidentally hurts him, or a little boy comes up and kicks him in the shin, or you know what little boys do. They act kind of rough and tumble, and they're just doing kind of a goofy thing to Lamech, doing what little boys do. And what does Lamech do? That little boy's not going to get away with that. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take the sword to that little boy. I'm going to mercilessly kill a boy out of a vendetta. And notice what he says. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Cain took revenge on Abel. I'm going to multiply it by seven, or seventy-seven times. Now, here's the question you should be asking. Okay, in Genesis 3.15, you promised Adam and Eve a seed. The seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. And it looks like Abel's been snuffed out, Cain's a wanderer, and then you have Lamech in these cities. This is the epitome of evil. What's going to happen? What is the fate or the destiny or the future of this seed? Where will the son be born that will bring the lineage of Christ ultimately? Has Satan won? Because it sure looks like the world is under the sway of the serpent. Abel, Abel is snuffed out. Cain is cursed. And Lamech is the epitome of evil. So Cain's offspring produce urbanization, cities, violence, sexual misconduct. And yet God shows grace in the midst of chaos. It doesn't take God by surprise. It's not like God's back there saying, I didn't, I didn't figure this out. I didn't plan for this. This goes against my plan. What am I going to do now? Now let's keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word Seth means granted, or God granted. What was Cain's name, remember? The first time Eve bore, I got. Look what I did. Look what I produced. Look what I got. She learned her lesson. Now what does she say when she has Seth? God granted. God granted me a seed. God and his sovereign grace caused this boy to be born. So Seth is going to be the offspring of promise because his name is granted. God granted, God appointed, God graced her. It's no longer Eve saying, I did this with the help of the Lord. It's now, no, God did this. God gave me. Now, what's Cain's legacy? Cain's legacy was he was a murderer and an unrepentant, restless wanderer whose lineage produced violent cities, the arts, and weapons. A godless society with no regard for human life and no regard for God. What's Seth's legacy? Seth's offspring pioneer worship. Look at the very last phrase in the passage of Scripture before us in verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Did you notice the, the weird wording At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to do it. Cain, think about two two, two faces. What was Cain's face? Cain's face was downturned, and Cain's face went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain looked down and away. Cain complained to God. Cain did not own up to his sin. Cain looked away from God and looked down. 
And yet, where does Seth look up? They looked up. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to worship and pray. Now, it's very important. This phrase, this is the first time this phrase is used where men called upon the name of the Lord. Think about all the Psalms. I will call upon the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. This is the very first time in the Bible it says, I will call upon the Lord. The people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Yahweh. Prayer. Worship. Supplication. Not just any name, but the name of the Lord. So you have two offspring here. Well, Abel snuffed out. But you got the offspring of Cain in the direction of godlessness, sin, rebellion. That's one track. The other track is Seth, worship, prayer, devotion. And the question you should be asking is this. Well, which side am I on? Am I on the side of Cain or am I on the side of Seth? Are you the one who calls upon the name of the Lord or are you on the side that turns your back on the Lord? Now, writer of Hebrews says something very interesting about Abel's blood and Jesus' blood. Hebrews 12, 24. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood of that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's weird. Let's ask the question. Why does the writer of Hebrews talk about the blood of Christ speaking a better word than the blood of Abel? Abel died needlessly. His blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus died purposely. But notice the similarities between the two. Abel was killed by a corrupt sinner. Jesus was put to death by corrupt sinners. But Jesus' blood speaks a far better word because it accomplishes our salvation. It accomplishes our redemption. It accomplishes our forgiveness. It gives us access into heaven. And so, how do you receive the blood of Christ? You do what Abel did and what the lineage of Seth did. You call upon the name of the Lord. And the only way that you can have that relationship with God is through Jesus, the one mediator whose blood speaks a better word than Abel's because Jesus' blood saves. It was shed so that we could have eternal life. So our first parents, Adam and Eve, plunged us into sin and we saw the immediate effects of rebellion in Cain and his offspring. But in God's grace, Seth, granted, given, was granted to Eve and then the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. How are you saved? Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's two ways you can go. You can follow the way of Cain. Unrepentant. Rebellious. Not taking God at his word to give you a second chance when he shows you kindness, walking in rebellion, turning your face against the Lord. Or you can follow the voice or the path of Abel, whose blood still speaks, and Seth. Abel, think about Abel and Seth. Abel brought a substitutionary atonement as a proper sacrifice to God. He understood the need for a substitutionary atonement. Seth, in his lineage, began to call upon the name of the Lord. So instead of being like Cain, let's all be like Abel and Seth. 
we need Jesus as our substitutionary atonement, and we would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Thus ends the sibling rivalry of Cain and Abel. Are there